0: Well, as we approach this miracle, this fourth sign that John has recorded, um, man, I, I want us to allow ourselves to see what God is displaying here. Because I, I, I was just convicted, even this morning, uh, even, even just the last few minutes, that sometimes I want to, like I have my theology and I have my things that make me feel safe, about what I know about God, what He'll do, what I can, what I could say, what I could pray, what I, and, and sometimes in an effort to to guard that theology and to be you know honoring to that, sometimes we can sort of like, you know, especially I say we, particularly referring to uh, a more you know theologically conservative uh, Baptist-like circle where we, we're real skeptical of anything charismatic, meaning anything that the Spirit might have done that we can't explain. And, and sometimes we, we overcorrect what the Bible doesn't intend for us to overcorrect. And this story is the only story in all, that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only one. If you know much about how the, the Gospels are put together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They share a large percentage of the same stories. John is a bit different. He, he's sharing stories most of the time that aren't included in the others. And, and with a different theme, a different purpose, a different focus. But this one is included in all four Gospels. That, that needs to just right at, at the jump, but we need to take notice of that. that and, and to remember how John has set up this entire Gospel, this entire book, he has written, why? So that we might believe, so that we would believe in who Jesus was. He told us in chapter 1 that Jesus has come full of grace and full of truth. He says that no one has seen the living God, but Jesus has come to make him known. This is why Jesus has come. This is the point of John's writing so that we would believe and we would believe rightly. So when we see such a story like this, when we see miracles like this, we should let ourselves be genuinely moved. By the power of our God, and by the generosity of our God, by the um, compassion of our God, we should allow ourselves to, to genuinely rejoice at who He is. And so this story, I just I just want us to, to give ourselves permission to let it matter in that way. Now, there is a purpose, there is a reason that Jesus does this story. He's going to connect. Uh, th- this, this, is a long, this is the longest uh, chapter in the book of John. And so we're going to be in chapter 6 even longer than we were in, in chapter 5, I believe. But there's a, there's a good bit of explanation. There's a good bit of tension that's going to come as a result of this story. Right. And that tension is going to be the result of much teaching that, that he's going to unpack and, and connect a bunch of dots for them. And and in all of that there is this through line of who Jesus is, is who God has promised that he would send. All the way back to Moses. Whenever he brings his people out of Egypt, in the the greatest story that we know from the Old Testament is the Exodus story, bringing them out of slavery and into the Promised Land. There are consistent parallels and through lines that you'll see that Jesus is actually embodying and living out. And that is not accidental, but is not merely a token either. It is him showing that what God has been doing is now being fulfilled completely and fully in him and that he is the greater Moses. And greater than Moses, he is actually the Jehovah God who was giving the people the provision, the plagues that got them out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea that got them away from the, you know, the army of Pharaoh, and then the God who gave them the, the manna when they were in the wilderness and they had nothing to eat. All of this is supposed to be the backdrop. In fact, John would tell us as much in verse 4. He just throws in a note there that the Passover is at hand. That that's the the setting for this incredible miracle is that the Passover is at hand. The Passover for the Jews is not unlike what we just celebrated the 4th of July for Americans. It's this moment in their history where God brought them out of oppression and where they celebrate their coming independence, right? Their coming like establishment as a nation. And so the way that we gather around and celebrate on the Fourth of July uh, should allow us to uh, resonate just a bit with the Jews. Now, others was far greater, right? I don't mean to compare apples to apples there. Just the, the the significance of a holiday for a nation is really hard to overstate. For the Passover, for the Jews, this was their. Moment, their holiday, their feast. There were several feasts that they they observed every year, but none bigger than the Passover. And it was this time to gather and remember God bringing them out of Egypt, which was slavery, it was oppression, it was not the life that they longed for. And God had heard their prayers and rescued them out. And so this is the backdrop, and Jesus knows this, right? You see this sort of grin when he asked Philip. You know, we'll talk about that in a moment. But it says he didn't do that because Jesus didn't really know what he was going to do. What he was going to do, he did that to test him. For he knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. All these stories seem to be Jesus is pulling away, and he is right. So he's just had this incredible time of uh, teaching that followed the miracle that he did when he healed the man at, at the pool of Bethesda, right? And then all of this. Comes from that and there's this teaching and then he pulls away. So verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and there's a crowd that's following him. So it's, it's interesting to note though, there's a crowd that's following him. What we also know, there's a crowd who's wanting to kill him. And so there's this building tension in the community where the religious people are plotting openly uh, and, and, and campaigning against Jesus because he's dangerous. He's dangerous to their power. He's dangerous to their worldview and what they thought would be and what th- their safety is as religious leaders. He's dangerous. He's a threat that has to be dealt with. And so there's that uh, is gaining momentum, and at the same time, there's a growing crowd that are following him because, which is what's causing the threat, that's really the threat that the religious leaders are feeling, is that Jesus is gaining an incredible following of people. And so we see that um, there's this large crowd of people, verse 2, following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, we've already been warned about this sort of faith, this sort of... um, you know this is this is not super hopeful, um, in the context of John. He's pointed out a couple times that Jesus isn't entrusting himself to people that are just following him for the miracles, just there for the usefulness of Jesus or the the popularity and the buzz that comes from Jesus. There, there's a warning that comes with that. It, it Jesus, but at the same time, there's not unashamedness that comes with that. Jesus is not afraid to do these miracles, but the miracles are supposed to point us to something greater. And you need to sit with that for a minute. Because if you think that Jesus has merely come to uh, <clears throat> right the wrongs in the world, to, to heal uh, physical suffering and to feed uh, you know, physical hunger and those sorts of things, listen, he did more than any of us could ever fathom, and this is a great example of that. And yet, on the grand scheme of things, he did very little to actually fix the the humanitarian crisis that exists in the world, right? And you need to let that have its proper weight. Jesus does care about the physical suffering of the world, absolutely, but beyond that is a greater need uh, the need of our souls, the need of salvation that far exceeds the, the craving of our flesh for food, the, the craving of our flesh for healing, and, and Jesus is always with his sights on that need. It's he's, uh, he's not that he doesn't have compassion on those needs, but he does healings. He does um, miracles that provide wine at weddings and food at incredible outdoor gatherings like this so that we may believe. He's not here to merely fill bellies and heal bodies. Those are meant to point us to something greater. They're signs. And so if we just get focused on those, we lose sight of what he's doing beyond that. And so we know that that's, that's part of what's happening here. And yet Jesus isn't going to um, condemn them for that. Not just yet. It's coming a bit later in the, in the chapter where he's going to call them out for that. Uh, but but here he's he's not afraid to to go ahead and, and and display his power. So that's why these people are following him. Verse four we already talked about. It just kind of provides some context for us. It's it's noting the time, right? So John is one of the the clearest. Uh, Examples or or helps us to track how long Jesus' ministry was because he will note three different Passovers that Jesus has attended. We've already seen one; that's whenever he came into the temple uh, and you know started running people out and saying, "Hey, I'll tear this thing down and rebuild it in three days." We we talked about that in John chapter two. That was the first Passover. The last one will be whenever he actually gives his own life, the Passion Week um, there as the Lamb. And this is the intermediate one. This is the the second. Um, year of Jesus's ministry, where we have a noted Passover meal, and so it, it provides that context in, in the bigger picture of Jesus's ministry. But it provides more the specific context of what would have been on the people's minds, right? It's on the fourth of July. You hopefully thought a little bit about history, right? Hopefully, you, you allowed yourself to go a little bit deeper than just the barbecues and fireworks, whatever, but you thought a bit about history, right? And so for these people, Passover is on their mind. The reason that that God has commanded that they gather annually and observe this meal is so that they would be reminded, and it would be ever in front of them, the provision of their God. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is why God has put the Passover in place. So this would be on their mind, the the story of God bringing them out of Egypt, out of the oppression of the Egyptian uh, people and into the promised land, okay? And with that comes this hope for them that that the Messiah will come and bring them out of the oppression of the Roman government that they're currently under the oppression of. All of these things are what fills the the lines and the colors of of these people's worldview and what they're thinking about. And so verse 4 just reminds us that this is the context. And so here's Jesus. He's sitting on a mountain now with his disciples. So he's up on a hill, and as he's there, you know, all indications are he's trying to go and just kind of hang with his boys and get a minute. You're going to see this even next week, uh, the miracle of Jesus walking on water. There's a lot of layers to that, but the most obvious one is he's trying to get away from people for a minute. Jesus is intentional about his withdrawal. Uh, but, and so all indications are like he's, he's, he's up there to be alone with his disciples, but as he is there, he looks up. Lifting his, his eyes. And I want you to try to picture this. And he sees this large crowd coming toward him. Now, large crowd is super, like, relative to the context and subjective, right? For some people, this is a large crowd. 150 or 160 of you, right? Uh, if you've been to large events, you, you, you've had the feeling of being swamped into a large crowd. But to be up on a... On a on an elevated vantage point on a mountain and to see what we're going to later find out was at least 5,000 people. And that's at least. Because every, almost every conservative scholar would say the, the, the focus, every four gospel, all four gospels point out that it was 5,000 men. So it is, is very commonly under, understood that this is not just 5,000 people. It's a, a bare minimum. You can assume there's double that. It's, it's really not unrealistic to think that it's fifteen to 20,000 people with, with women and children counted. So again, but even if it's just 5,000, that's a lot of people, isn't it? I don't know if you can wrap your mind around that, 5, 10, 15,000. I don't know know how many of you go to Saluki football games or you've been in that arena, but it holds about 15,000 people. So if you think about that amount of, of people coming at Jesus, we just assume that. We're like, okay, cool, yeah. No, I want you to think about that. What is that saying? Jesus is killing it. Now kids are like checking their phone, see how many followers they got on the social medias or whatever. Jesus got people literally following him, physically following him. Fifteen grand or so, probably more. People showing up to to listen, to watch, to observe, to know more, to to see. So this is a, this is like okay. There's some excitement here. There's there's an excitement about this. Like there's there's. There's that kind of brewing in it. Oh, you know, like the disciples, there's a buzz happening, right? People are coming to see what Jesus is doing, coming to watch what Jesus is doing, to hear what Jesus is teaching. And so I, I want you to feel that very real reality. So this is what Jesus sees, and now he's going to ask his boy, Philip. Now, why is he ask Philip? Philip is from the area. Philip is from this town. And so much like we would be like, you're from out of town, but you're you're with a with a guy that grew up here. It's like, hey, dude, where should we get some food? Where's a good place to eat? Jesus goes, hey, Philip, um, where are we to buy bread so that all these people are going to eat? Now, there's a whole lot going on there, isn't there? Like it's it's like Jesus, I like if y'all told me I had to feed you right now, that'd freak me out, right? Like, uh, I don't know. Call. Let I me mean, call a pizza place or three, right? Five thousand plus, maybe more, like. So he goes, "Hey, Philip, um, if we're going to buy bread for all these people. Where would we go?" Right? And he's and he's got to be grinning a little bit because it, John says again, John is firsthand here. You got to notice some of the details the way that 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 um, John unpacks them. You know all. Scholars would agree, this is John the beloved, John the disciple. and He's there, he's present with this. And so he's watching this go down and he sees Jesus ask Philip, Hey, uh, where, where are we going to get food for all these people? Right? But verse six, John throws it in. He said this to test him, for he himself knew exactly what he was going to do. Right? So in this moment, there's this need there's this reality. Now, if Jesus doesn't feed these people, are they going to die? No, right? They, they probably have listened to Jesus for several hours already from chapter five, his, his, his teaching and unpacking, right? Uh, and Mark fills in, in Mark's account of this, fills in some of the blanks that they actually kind of followed him around the north side of the, of the lake. And so, so, yeah, they've been listening to him and now they've followed him. And, and Jesus hasn't even, had like Mark makes it a point that Jesus and his disciples haven't had time to eat, right? They haven't either. And so this is not we're going to die level like they feel in the desert back in Exodus. But this is, there's a bunch of people. And Jesus is assuming the responsibility of a hospitable host. He's assuming the responsibility of caring for them, right? And, and so there's this need that's put there. And and it's a... It's a laughably unsolvable problem. Like, you need to feel it's ludicrous for Jesus, for Jesus to look at Philip and say, hey, uh, where are we going to buy some food for all these folks? And Philip just goes, um, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you're asking, but if we had 200 denarii, worth of bread, which is about eight months of a salary, right? A denier is, is, a, is a day's labor, a, days, or a wage for a day's labor. Majority of that would be spent on bread for your family. So if you had eight months worth of that, Phillips was like, if we had that, Jesus, and we don't, we're poor, we've been following you. I don't know if you noticed, Jesus, we don't go to work every day because we're following you now, right? Kind of broke. Um, but if we had that, I don't know if we, everybody just gets a nibble. I don't know if we can serve communion to this crowd, with eight months' worth of wages. So here we begin to start to notice the theme. Remember, John has said, nobody's ever seen God. Jesus is here to display him. But just because they hadn't seen him doesn't mean they shouldn't have known him because he has revealed himself over and over again through the Old Testament. And there has been this theme where he's invited his people to see beyond the immediate, physical, apparent problem and to look to him for, for provision. This is the invitation that God has been inviting his people to from the very beginning. And what our consistent response is, and I say are because we are like Philip and we are like Andrew. We are, we are not People who, who generally see beyond the physical issue to a God who's promised to provide. Instead, what do we do? We look and we, we're, we're making physical calculations. Like, uh, I, I really don't see a way to do this, Jesus. The, like if, if we do the math, it's, it's well beyond our needs. The need it far exceeds the resources that we have on hand. And so this is the tension that's put there. One of his disciples, verse 8, Andrew, or Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a—and in, in Mark, he, he gives a little bit more detail where, where Jesus actually sends the disciples out to kind of uh, just survey the, the, the crowd and see if maybe somebody brought a really, big, really, really really big cooler, right? And maybe there's some food that we can work with and if we just pull it all together, right? So that's more of the context that, that Mark gives us. And they come back, and, and here's Andrew's like, um, I mean, there's this boy. The, the word boy there could just be young man, young slave man, young lady. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean little boy with like a superhero lunchbox. It, it, it's a young man, right? But there's a boy with a lunch of, of sorts, and he's like, uh, he's got five barley loaves and two fish. What, but, but he just goes, but what are they for so many? What good are they, right? And so this is, this is what is brought before him. Now, barley loaves, there's a couple of things going on there. Barley was, was, the, was the, uh, the bread of the lower class. It was the least of the breads, and it was the cheapest of the breads. And when it says loaves, it's probably not talking about a bigger loaf. Now, even if it is, I got a family of seven, and when we do sandwiches, a loaf of bread disappears Times a couple. Because I got kids that are growing. They eat two sandwiches. You fix, like my wa- like we go, she goes take some swimming once a week or so. And she packs lunches because she's awesome. And, and when she does that, it's like that loaf of bread is, we got some kids like wheat bread, some kids like white bread, and, and they're just gone. So even if it is a bigger loaf, that ain't going very far, right, for this crowd. But scholars would actually say probably not loaves as much as little, little cakes, because honestly, on the other hand, if this dude's just packing five loaves of bread for his lunch, easy killer right like that for a personal lunch, five loaves is a lot for five thousand people it 's laughably little, but it 's probably more just some small cakes that have been made as uh, more biscuit type of things that it, it, that we're talking about here but again so it's barley it's the it's the least of all the breads and it's a couple fish probably pickled fish probably just like on the side like the bread is going to be considered the primary thing but it's just kind of like a a side deal so that's what is brought and and andrew it's seemingly a bit embarrassing is like well i mean i found this one dude he's got a little bit what's that going to do for here and i love that it just moves so quickly verse 10 jesus goes all right have everybody sit down i'm good the disciples are like I mean, we haven't solved the problem yet. And Jesus goes, have everybody sit. Picture that. I tried to find a picture that would do this justice. Outdoor concerts, Woodstock, things like that. Passion 2000 when, when John Piper was teaching. I think there was like 40,000 people there. But you just imagine these, these people like, scattered along these hillsides out in the grass and, and Jesus tells them to sit down there's no amplification for a microphone there there's no like but mountains provide this amphitheater type deal and, and has everybody sit down so this is a this is like a, a chaotic moment but everybody is sitting down and there's a lot of grass in the place that just kind of again notes a little bit of the time it's before the, the you know the sun has just fried all of the grass in the summer uh, but there, there's, there's grass there. And the men sit down. And here's where we find out there's about 5,000 in number. In verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and he gives thanks. He doesn't even say he blesses the food. He just gives thanks to the Father. He gives thanks to the Father. And then it, there's no lead up. There's no like. And then he said, abracadabra, how would you do? Like, there's no like, like, watch this, y'all. Like, swirling of the the deal, like no, no, it just he takes the loaves, he lifts up, he gives thanks to God and then he just starts distributing it. And he distributes to them to all those who sat down and so also the fish and he doesn't qualify or put limits on any of it. Listen, I don't know if you've been around people that are freaking out that they're not going to eat, but I ran a grocery store for several years, and when the meteorologists tell y'all that snow is coming, you lose your minds. And I had to limit my bread at Aldi, because y'all would come in and buy whole trays. I don't know what you're doing with it. Do you guys all make French toast when it snows? Because everybody buys bread, milk, and eggs. Like, what are you doing at home? First of all, I don't ever get snowed in, but if I did, I'm not making, fr- what are you doing? But bread, milk, and eggs, I got to limit all of it. People come in, why don't, I can only buy two, why can I only buy two? I'm like, because if you buy them all, the next person that comes in to buy one has none, and, and people got really angry at me. I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't order for this chaos. My bread truck's five days out, I ordered for normal chaos. This and people got really angry because I had to limit it. You know, take one loaf, one, two loaf, whatever, right? And then my shift manager would come in the next day and order based off of that chaos, and then we'd have bread for days. And then I'm throwing bread away a week later. You just need to know that's what happens in your, in your grocery stores. If you don't have good, they're just going to gonna run out during that, and then they're going to order the, accordingly if somebody doesn't stop them the next week thinking that we're going to sell that much bread, and then the next week or two they're going to be discounted bread. Um, now you can come in and buy it for 50 cents a loaf because that's what happens. But Jesus doesn't limit it. When they're feeling that kind of pressure, we're going to go, okay, go ahead and pass the basket, but make sure nobody takes too much. Just let them start with one, one bite of bread and, and maybe a half a fish. Cut the fish up, man. Just got to distribute that. Everybody don't need a whole fish, right? We're going to have thoughts. We're going to have a plan. But Jesus goes, no, no, just pass it out. How much can I take? As much as you want. How much can I take? As much as you want. And you got to think, that has to be shared over and over. Because I tell this row, that row didn't hear it. Over and over. How much can you take? As much as you want. Go ahead. Fill up. Load your plate. Load your napkin. Pass it out. Get your kids all they want. Well, they might not eat that much. Let me just start with a happy meal. Let me just just get this, and I'll spread it. No. As much as you want. Just take it. As much as you want. As much as you want. As much as they wanted. Verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, so this is not a quick deal. This is, this is happening for a while. First of all, it's going to take a while to distribute that. It just is. That's a big crowd. And then secondly, he's going to let them all eat. And you, like, picture picture that, that, that environment. As the plates go around and they... They just fill up, like, and then I don't know what they're seeing. I don't know what they're seeing in the baskets. Says it just like, that row emptied it, and I hand it to the next row, and it's full again. And then, like, I don't know what they're seeing, but there is a building excitement that has to be happening here. As 15-ish thousand people are fed from a young man's lunch, there's a growing swell of cheers and excitement that lead to the point that Jesus goes, oh, snap, they're going to try to make me king. Because at the same time as what I, I told you to think about what's brewing, and you know, when you see that crowd of people, you're thinking, man, this, is, this ministry is going really well. Followers, are like, he's trending upward. This campaign is going great. Like, we have the polls. It's going really well, Jesus. But at the same time, what could be seen is that there's at least 5,000 men. And what are men good for? an army a militia right this is this we could we could we could start something if we got a leader this charismatic maybe we can overthrow some roman rule you see this starts to be on their minds if if we have a leader like this then we what could we do cuz if he can do this what can't he do and this is what's on their mind and they so they start to get This excitement grows and grows to a fever pitch to the point where Jesus goes, I'm going to slip out. Otherwise, they're going to miss the whole point. They're going to miss exactly what I'm trying to show them because their eyes are down here, and I'm trying to get their eyes up here. So, when they had eaten their fill, he tells his disciples, verse 12, all right, go ahead and gather up the leftovers. Super common Jewish practice, gather up the leftovers. We don't want to waste right? Also, you know, and anyway, there's, there's ties back to the Exodus even where they weren't allowed together, the leftovers, but this is, this is him saying the, the old is gone, the new has come, the new kingdom. You, you, know, you remember back to uh, John chapter 2, whenever he does give the wine um, to uh, the, the wedding that's run out, right? Again, there's this moment of they don't have any more wine. There, there's social humiliation. There's panic in that moment, and Jesus tells him what to do, and he fills up like lavish amounts of really, really good wine. Why? Because he wants us to know that his kingdom is new, and it is better than we would have ever dreamed. We have ideas of what we want Jesus to do for us. We have ideas of what we think Jesus needs to do for us. We've got our list for him. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to show you that it's far better, far greater, even more than you would have ever dreamed to ask. Because we would never presume on God's generosity the way that Jesus is inviting us to presume on God's generosity. We would never do that. And yet here's what he's putting before us. God's generosity is far greater than you could have ever wanted. Again, he just passed baskets telling everybody to take as much as they want. Oh, you want some more? Pass it back around until they were full. And now he says, all right, now, we don't want anything left. We don't want to ruin any leftovers. I don't know how you guys do leftovers in your house. It's a bit of a tension for us. I'm really scared to throw anything away that we paid money for. So like a little bit of Coke left in a can, I'm putting that in the fridge. My wife hates it um, because I never drink it. But I feel better knowing I gave myself a chance (laughs) to not waste that right? And so there's there's like, we put leftovers in and, and we don't always eat them all, you know, and there's that deal. And I don't know what shaped that in me, but it, it, there it is. She, she swears I grew up in the depression. I, I don't know. I'm old soul. It is what it is, but there's a tension there. But Jesus goes, hey, we don't want to lose. There's leftovers. At the same time is that when I eat at a restaurant and I get leftovers, I put them in a box. I leave it on the table every time. Every time. I had lunch with somebody the other day and I took I, Put leftovers in a box, and I just left it there. I don't know. So there's a tension there. But Jesus goes, hey, go ahead and round up everything that's left. We don't want to waste. And what do they come back with? So they gathered them up, and they filled how many baskets? Twelve. What's that about? What has been the defining number for God's people throughout their whole existence? God brought them into the promised land, it established them. Or even before, as he was bringing them into the promised land, he built them into what? Twelve tribes. So here, they come back, and they got these baskets, and they count them. And I, I got to think Jesus is just grinning. I don't know, but I think he's just grinning. As they go, how are those baskets? They're full, Jesus. How many are there? There's twelve. Jesus goes, yeah, I know there. I know exactly how many people I have. I know exactly what my people look like that are dependent upon me. And my provision for them is not scarce. My provision for them is not minimum, what you got. my provision for them is sufficient beyond what they will imagine. You see, the theme of the Bible is not that we are a people with appetites that are far too great, that have to be squashed down and disciplined out of. We can't want things. We can't let ourselves. No, Jesus is consistently saying, yeah, you're thirsty. You have a physical thirst. Use that. Use that to take you to the throne. Use that to take you to the fountain of living water because your thirst is not wrong. Your desires, right? Even sexual desires, they're they're not wrong. Our our, our physical cravings for food, they're not wrong. It's not that we are people of too great of an appetite. As C.S. Lewis says, it's that we're far too easily satisfied. We're, We're content to just pilfer the the trash bins of what he's offered us instead of presuming upon this gracious and good God. All throughout scripture, this is what he's been teaching us. You think you just need to get out of Egypt so that you can not have to work so hard. What I'm showing you is I have a blessing for you that will make the whole world take note. You think that you just need this, but I'm telling you, it's something far greater. So he takes these physical desires that we have, and he he invites us to to let them teach us something, to to show us something far greater. In our um, last elder training session this last week, we talked about the discipline of fasting. And in that, uh, the author uh, Donald Whitney pointed out and talked about a couple of the, the, the stories in the Scripture where um, Moses and Elijah were both with God in such a way that they didn't eat. Moses, for 40 days and 40 nights, they didn't eat or drink because he was on the mountain with God. What is that about? Jesus, Remember Jesus told us, you don't live by bread alone? But, but what our deepest craving, our deepest longing, our deepest need is, is, the presence of God. And when we have that, even the physical cravings of our flesh are satisfied and are content. You see, he's inviting us to see his generosity and his provision that is laughably greater than anything we would ever dare presume upon him. Twelve baskets. He says, I, I, I'm sufficient for all of my people. Sufficient for all of their needs. I've never forgotten you. I, I, I've seen you. I've seen your suffering. I, I told you I would come. I promised you that I would. And I'm here. And the people actually start to get that just a little bit. Because in verse 14, it says, the people saw the sign that they had done, or that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet. Who, was t- who we were told would come into the world. Now, this, this, the prophet, you see this a couple times in John, it's referring most specifically to a passage in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses is, is um, giving a word to his people from God. As Moses is on his way out, he's preparing his people for his death, and he's telling them what's to come now as they're preparing to take in the promised land. In, in Deuteronomy 18, he tells them, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, From your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. Sound familiar? Jesus just got done telling us, I'm not just saying what I want to say. Saying what God has told me to say. I'm not doing anything that God isn't doing in heaven, right? This is this is the promise from Deuteronomy 18. This is Jesus is fulfilling that. He shall speak to them what I command. So this is the prophet that the people are referring to whenever they say, hey, they're they're starting to get it. This is Passover. After the Passover, people were in the wilderness and they were hungry. And they said, What are we going to eat? And at this point, we got hundreds of thousands of people, well beyond the 15,000 sitting here. What, how are we going to feed these people? And they start to grumble. Why did, Moses, why would you bring us out of Egypt just so we could starve to death in the wilderness? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? This is this just a whole ruse? And God goes, no, I got you. I got you. Every day, you're going to wake up and you're going to find the stuff on the ground. And it's your provision. It's manna. And I'm going to give you enough for today. Don't hoard it. Don't think you got to keep enough, like, get some for tomorrow in case I don't show up. No, no. Just trust me. You try to hoard it, I'm going to spoil it. You come, you get what you need for the day, and the next day I'll be there again. Right? People are starting to put this together. Oh, Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, and God gave them manna from heaven. They're starting to get it. Oh, Moses did this. Maybe he is the prophet that Moses has promised. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, you're close. You're close. But Moses didn't give you the bread. Moses didn't give you the manna. That was Yahweh. Who gave you the bread today? Am I more like Moses or am I more like Yahweh? Is the question that Jesus is leading them to consider, not just a mere man, not just a mere prophet. Yes, I am Moses was a type of Christ. He was supposed to point you to me. But Moses didn't give you the manna. Moses was leading you. God gave you the manna. I just gave you bread from a, from a young man's lunch that fed 5,000. I am Yahweh in your presence, in your midst, to meet your needs. And you cannot over presume on my generosity and my richness. I am a God who is here to fill your cravings, to fill your desires, to satisfy your soul. Catch the theme. Woman at the well, you keep drinking that water. You're going to have to come back. You're going to stay thirsty. I'll give you water. you'll never thirst again. Here he's saying, this is who I am. This is the God that I've been trying to be for my people. When you have needs that exceed your resources, it is not a moment of despair, but rather a moment of opportunity to see our God work. This is why he brings them to the Red Sea out of Egypt, so that he can show up for them. This is why he brings them into a desert without a lunch sufficiently packed for the trip for that number of people so that he could show up for them. This is why he brings them onto the brink of a promised land where they have no chance against the militaries of these people that they're looking at and so that he could show up for them. This is why it is David that walks up to Goliath and nobody has stands a chance against Goliath. But David goes, our God has showed up for us. He showed up for me. Like, I don't stand a chance against lions and bears, but he's let me to kill him. Like, I'll take on that dude. Right? That, that parallel that David is presuming on God's goodness and God's provision is at play right here. Jesus is saying, Yeah, 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 it's this. This is who I am. This is who is inviting you to trust him. He is not of God of scarcity. He is not a God of punitive vengeance on you for your lack of faith or your sin in the past where he's holding out on you and you only get this because of this. No, he's a God of lavish generosity who's inviting you to see moments of need as actual invitations to faith. Invitations to see God at work. So, we're going to... He's going to unpack the theology of all this as we go through the chapter. But for today, I simply want us to sit and ask ourselves the question, what's going on in your life where you see no way forward? You've ran the numbers, and you got no hope. What's going on in our community, in our world, and you've ran the numbers? There's nothing you could do. We've closed ourselves off to the statistics of addiction and kids in foster care and, and people suffering and orphanages around the world and all of these huge problems. And we've exempted ourselves because we think, what could I do? Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not asking you what you can do. You see, he, he, asked, he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread, bread dude? Why would he ask him? To test him. He'd give that test out of some kind of spite or just to cut. Is this a gotcha moment? No, this is an invitation moment. Philip's been with Jesus. He's just seen Jesus heal an official son from 15 miles away. He's just seen Jesus um, heal a guy that's been invalid for 38 years, and he's saying, do you get it yet, Philip? What are we going to do about feeding all these people? It's an invitation to say, I don't know what you're going to do. Can you use this food? Here, do do your thing, Jesus. Jesus isn't asking you, what, what can you do to fix the problems in the world? He's asking you to consider, what am, I try- what am I doing? What can I do? Don't worry about your resources. Don't worry about your proficiency, your ability. Just give him what you got. Give him what you got and let him do the thing. Let him do it, whatever it is. Let him blow not only your mind, but the people's minds in our community. Let him cause revival with your meager offering of your life. I want to close with a quote from Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. She says this: "If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, then you offer a broken heart." So in a time of grief, the recognition that this material for sacrifice that this is material for sacrifice, rather, has been a very great strength to me. If you know her story, her husband and entire team was killed um, on the missionary on the missions field, and and she. Her contributions afterward have been significant, and this is her writing, saying, realizing that I can just offer a broken heart, and that's material for sacrifice, has been a great strength for her. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes, with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, 'What what, what is the good of that? For such a crowd that's the way we come offering ourselves to the Lord so often she goes on to say naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ my my reaction would be what's the good of that? but the point is that he <clears throat> the use that he makes of it is none of my business it 's his business it's his blessing so this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain this story that wasn't our, that wasn't going the way that we think it should, this cancer diagnosis, this fear, this change in job, this change in my kids' story, whatever it is, whatever's brought to you this, this moment, whatever it is which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith is bringing me to the recognition of who He is. That's the thing that I can offer. So Will we be a people who allow ourselves to just offer what we've got? Offer our lives, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Not knowing what he can do or what will happen, but just, just saying, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Can you use me? Like, use me. Do what you want with me. Can you take this circumstance, this fear, this pain, this doubt, and offer that to him? In this moment, for those of you that you are here and you don't know Jesus at all, and this is foreign, this is strange, the offer for you today is to bring your sin, the sin that you can never cover by being good enough, trying harder, doing better. Bring your sin, bring your story to him and offer it to him. And he says, come, my child, though your sins are many and there is scarlet, come, let's reason together. Let me take those from you. Because I already paid for them on the cross. Let me take them from you. I'm going to put them on the altar of the cross. It's it's paid for. It's finished. It's done. It's washed away. That debt is canceled. Let me put that over here. Let me give you my righteousness. Let me give you my life. You don't deserve it, but I want to give it to you. These people didn't deserve it. They had shallow reasons for following Jesus, and yet he lavishly gifts them with more than they would ever dare to have asked. Let's take Jesus' words, take the momentous story that's recorded, the only one recorded in all four Gospels, and let's let it change us. We don't need to change who God is to fit our life. We need to let these revelations about who our God is change us. Let's pray. God, it's far beyond what we can even imagine to try to apply this story to our lives. There's so many reasons why it's not that and it shouldn't be this. And we have, we, when we begin to believe that maybe you could do something about whatever's going on, then we write it off with the reasons why that's not reasonable, that won't happen, I can't even ask for that. Would you help us to be a people of overwhelming faith, irrational faith in you? And then through that, you just do really great things. Do what you want. Even though we may not see it for years to come, it might not turn out exactly like this story where we leave with baskets full of food. Our cancer diagnosis might not be one that's turned around into healing. Our, our story of a prodigal kid might not be one that comes back around into a beautiful, tied up, um, redemptive story. But as we offer what we have and who we are in this moment, we trust that you'll take it and that you'll use it for the good, and that one day we'll sit back and go, oh my goodness, he did that with my story. That when we sit around the feast at the end, we'll know exactly what you were doing and exactly how you used our meager lunch, our meager offering to make much of your namesake. Help us to have that kind of faith and offer ourselves accordingly. It's in your name, Jesus, come. Church, I-